Okay, I'm going to be reading Matthew 23, verses 13 through 36. And then in your chair Bibles there, it's on page 984 if you want to follow along. It says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all kinds of uncleanliness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, if we had been living in those days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all of these things will come upon this generation. The the doctrine of hell is not a fun thing to dwell on, to think about. The idea that eternal, conscious torment awaits millions of people is just anything but comforting. So I think for the most part, what most of us try to do is just try not to think about it. 
There's a problem, though, when you're studying through a gospel like the book of Matthew and you don't really want to think about the idea of hell. And that is the main character in the gospels, Jesus of Nazareth, he keeps bringing it up. Jesus talked more about hell than anyone else in the Bible talked about hell. People don't decide not to believe in the Bible, or excuse me, not to believe in hell, in eternal punishment, because it's obscure in the scriptures or something. We decide not to believe in it because it's uncomfortable to think about. Because we don't want to believe in it. A problem, though, A.W. Tozer said this. He said this vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciences of millions. Do you see what he's saying there? This just hope I'm going to put hell out of my mind and pretend that doesn't really happen and think somehow God's just too nice. He would never do that. Thinking that way has numbed people to the reality that that's the reality. See, if there is no hell, if there is no eternal punishment, then the risk isn't that big. What I believe on earth, how I live on earth, right? What's the, if there's no hell, what's the risk? But if there is a hell, This is not a sermon about hell, per se. But this is a tale of woe. Where we pick up today, we're, I'm going to call it halfway through, though we were not quite, but we're halfway through Jesus' last public sermon. We're going we're gonna to do most of the sermon today. It's kind of a long passage, but it is a unit that I want to take together because what Seth just read for us, in the book of Matthew, Matthew records seven times that Jesus pronounces woe on his enemies, the Pharisees. And when Jesus says woe, he's not trying to stop his horse. Okay, this is different. Woe is a, I know it's summertime, kids, and I hate to bring up English class, but woe is an example of onomatopoeia. Remember that from English class? It's a word that sounds like something like buzz. Sounds like the sound a bee makes. That's onomatopoeia. Woe is supposed to sound like a noise someone would make who is in extreme anguish and torment. And Matthew records seven times Jesus looking at some men and saying to other people, Woe to these guys. He's pronouncing, he's promising eternal damnation, torment, punishment on these men. Would that be a bad day? To have Jesus look at you and say, woe to you. That's a bad day. And by way of Introduction, just so we're not confused. I say seven. If you counted, you might have counted eight. 
I'm going to. It's going to seem like I'm skipping one. Today, Matthew recorded seven. We know Jesus said more. He said at least eight. If you notice, as Seth read through this passage, verse 14 here, where you look, if you have your Bible open, I would love for you to bring your Bibles, your own Bible, and have it open with you. Look for verse 14 in your Bible. Depending upon your translation, it might not even be there. A lot of our translations skip from verse 13 to verse 15. It's not a typo. You see verse 14 right here is in brackets in the New American Standard. And probably, unless you read the old school King James, you have some sort of footnote that lets you know that's not in the Greek text. Jesus said it. It's biblical. Because Matthew, excuse me, Mark records it and Luke records it. What happened is somewhere along the line there was a scribe, a copyist, who decided he would help Matthew out because that was not in Matthew. This is one we could be really sure of. The earliest Greek manuscripts, all of them just don't have verse 14, what we call verse 14. And some scribe, because he knew the New Testament really well, was like, well, I know what else Jesus said, so I'm going to help Matthew out. And what Matthew forgot, like the Holy Spirit was off that day that Matthew was writing this. Um, it, it's biblical. We, I'm not scared of it. I just don't want you to wonder why I'm skipping it as I skip it. Matthew just didn't write it. We're going to let Matthew say what Matthew said. Um, here's what Matthew presents. I believe Matthew wanted to present seven because that's the, in their language, their idea, their culture, the number of completeness. Jesus was pronouncing complete woe on his enemies. And also, Matthew wants 13 and 15 to go together because Matthew organizes these in pairs. There are three pairs that make the same point. Woes, one, two, three, four, five, six, and then a grand finale, woe, number seven. And then last thing by way of introduction, and we'll go through these fairly quickly because it's a big passage. I just want to draw your attention to the way and this is so cool. Jesus was so smart. He was, he was the best preacher that ever preached. Jesus began his public ministry, at least in Matthew, his preaching ministry, excuse me, with the Sermon on the Mount. We studied that in chapter 5. That was like 17 years ago when we were in Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus began his very first sermon in Matthew with the Beatitudes. Do you remember the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So here's how Jesus began his public preaching ministry. He held up the kind of person who gets blessed by God. And today we see how he ends the other, like the closing chapter of his preaching ministry is he holds up the Pharisees and says, here's the kind of person that gets judged, doomed, punished by God. And in the middle of all of that is the rest of his preaching ministry. So what we're going to see is two pairs of woes. We're going to look at them one pair at a time and make one main point where Jesus is going to be telling us, teaching us, showing us the kind of person who deserves eternal judgment 
using these enemies as his example, probably what we should want to do is see what these guys did wrong and sort of not be like that. Don't you suppose? We start the first two woes, verse 13 and verse 15, go together to make this main point, I think. People earn judgment when they make it more difficult for someone else to be saved from judgment. People earn judgment from God by making it more difficult for someone else to be saved from judgment by God. Now to put that in sort of our language, we know on this side of the cross what is the only way that anyone will be saved from eternal judgment by God. By belief in Jesus Christ. Right? We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus. That's it. And so we earn judgment the same way these guys did. Anytime we make it more difficult or less likely for someone else to come to know Jesus. For these guys, Jesus kind of says this. You guys think you're doing good work. You think you're helping be, people be more moral by trying to convince people to follow your this religion, this Pharisee, Pharisaic Judaism that you guys have, have established over the years. And it seems like you're doing a good thing, helping people be more moral. But in verse 13, and this gets translated a number of different ways, but it all carries the same point. What they're actually doing is slamming the door to the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. The NIV, I think, is the one that translates it just like that. You keep slamming the door to the kingdom in people's faces. It's really tempting for us to see people who seem like good people. Maybe they're going door to door. Maybe they're in pairs traveling around. Maybe they sell lots of best-selling books. Maybe they even appear on the Christian channel, TBN, giant air quotes with that one. And if they seem like, well, you know what? They seem sincere. They seem like good people. If they are peddling something that's not salvation by faith in Christ alone, they are slamming the door to the kingdom in people's faces without them knowing. <laughs> Verse 15, Jesus says, you guys pull out all the stops to make a convert. And when you make one, he said, it's like they're twice as deserving to be in hell as you guys are. If you uh, first century Jews, you travel around, you go door to door, you write books, whatever it is. You finally take someone out of some pagan religion and make them a convert to your religion. Now they have twice as many reasons to spend eternity in hell as you guys do. This is not a feel good sort of message. That's the first pair of woes. People earn judgment when they make it more difficult for someone else to avoid judgment or to be saved from judgment. The second pair of woes, are a, it's a huge section here between verses 16 and 24, but there's only two woes, woe, woe number three and woe number four. 
are in there. And here's the way I summarize these two woes. They go together to make this point. People earn judgment when they major on the minors and minor on the majors. You know what I mean by that? They make a big deal out of religious minutia and they ignore the things God actually has a heart for. It's such a big section. I don't have it all on the screen here. But the most of it, most of it, verses 16 through 22, is, is about a really weird system of oaths that seems so bizarre to us, we would never have this specific problem. Matter of fact, both of these things do not really apply to us, what Jesus takes them to task for. But the overall point definitely does. Most of it, here's their problem. Always since language has been language, there's been an, uh, a desire for people to be able to say something in a way where what I'm saying is like, really, you should believe me this time. And we say stuff like this all the time. Like I, and we all do. It's the way language works. We, I might be talking to you and I'm saying, seriously, right? seriously, and then I tell you something. Or I say, honestly. Or, hey, they, this is, you might say, this is God's truth, right? Somebody might say, as God is my witness. Uh, a lot of the guys I played basketball with uh, in college used to say stuff like this. I'll put that on my mom. You ever hear something like that? That's an oath. And what, what we're saying is, like, you can actually believe me this time. Like, this time I'm telling the truth. In Jesus' day, the Old Testament had some very serious words about taking oaths and breaking those oaths. So really, somebody who is serious about the scriptures had to be very careful with taking any kind of oath. Like, I'll put that on the temple. So what the Pharisees did, they still wanted to do this linguistic thing that said, seriously, you can believe me this time. But they really didn't want to come under God's judgment for breaking their oaths. So here's what they did. They developed this weird system of like varsity oaths and JV oaths. There's just one on the screen here, maybe a couple. Uh, Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple is bound by nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is bound by the oath. So just when they're out just doing business or whatever, they could say, no, seriously, I'll do this next week and I will take an oath on the temple. I will do that. They'd say, you know, if you break that one, God's really not going to be mad. But if you swear by the gold of the temple and then you don't do it, well, now God's mad. Um, it's, it's weird, but that's what it is. Jesus says, you know what God cares about? Integrity. You know what God cares about? Honesty. You know what God cares about? Dependability. You keeping your word. Earlier, he said, let your yes mean yes. Let your no mean no. And you don't need the rest of that stuff. Jesus says, you woe to you because you focus on these little tiny rules and you ignore the big thing. You, ma you major on the minor, minor on the major. The, the fourth woe there at the bottom is about tithing. Also, this one doesn't really apply to us. The, the Jews, the Israelites, were commanded by God to tithe. What's a tithe? It's a gift of 10%. They actually were commanded to tithe twice. They gave 10% to the temple. They gave an additional 10% for the poor. 
And that was before they brought any offerings, any sacrifices. Okay, so they really, it's 23, 24%, and there was free will offerings on top of that. Now, the good news for them, though, is they, that was also their system of taxes. That was, the, for us, that's like the church offering and the IRS was rolled into that. But Jesus takes them to task, not for tithing. Look what he says, verse 23. Woe to you, experts in the law, and you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You tithe your spices. Now, they didn't get their spices from Hill's family foods the way good imperialites do. They had to grow theirs, probably on their roof, in their kitchen, in little pots. And they, they tithed. You know, they would pick everything off the dill plant and count them all out. Little coriander seeds. Can you imagine counting off one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine for me, one for God. One, two, three, four, right? You know why they did that? Because they wanted to walk into the temple with these tiny little, I don't know what they used. Did they have Ziploc bags? Probably not. But they, they walked in with these tiny little containers of spices so that everybody, why? Because they were so concerned about making sure that they, they were faithful to the tithe? No, because they want everybody to see them walking down the aisle with a bunch of little uh, plastic bags or whatever they had. They look like drug dealers with a whole bunch of little plastic bags of dill. They probably got arrested on their way. But they wanted people to go, man, that guy's serious about the things of God. He tithes his paprika. Right? Jesus says, like, it wasn't doing anything for the storehouse at the temple. It wasn't doing anything for God. It was doing something for them. Jesus says, it's like you're spending so much time making sure there's no gnats in your water, which is not a bad thing. I don't want to swallow gnats. Right? But he says, like you spend so much time straining out gnats and you chug a whole bucket full of camels. Which one is worse? You guys are ignoring the big stuff, paying attention to the little stuff. So for us, like what's the big stuff? It would be like God saying, you don't forgive people. You don't love your neighbor. You don't serve anybody. You don't care about people who, who are less than, who don't have. But you're hiding behind a list of minutiae. You're hiding behind a list of these things that don't matter as much. Like, I don't, we just took an offering. I don't ever look. I don't know how much you put in, but here's what I know. However much I put in the offering doesn't make up for me just like not being kind to people. Does God care more about money or people? Sure, we have to major on the majors, minor on the minors. And don't get me wrong, it's not that the minors don't matter. Notice Jesus says in verse 23, you should have done these things. If you want to tithe your dill, tithe your dill. But don't hide behind your tithing of your dill to make yourself seem really righteous when you're not doing the things that are really in the heart of God. Does that make sense? And he says, people earn judgment from God when they make those mistakes. 
The next pair of woes. Woes 5 and 6, verses 25 through 28. I summarize them this way. People earn judgment when they care more about what people see than they care about what God sees. I want to read these. Jesus says, Woe to you, experts in the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so the outside may become clean too. Woe to you, experts in the law and you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs that look beautiful on the outside and inside they're full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you look righteous to people, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The washings, Jesus talks about washing the cup was a real thing. There were ceremonial washings that the really spiritual people did. They weren't in the law, but developed as part of their rules. Jesus said, it's, you, got, you only care what people think. Who do you think you're fooling? You're like whitewashed tombs. You're like a, a nice gravesite site that's nicely landscaped. It's got the flowers and the tomb door is painted. But inside, you're just full of death and yuck. This reminds me of, remember when the prophet Samuel, God sent him to pick out the next king of Israel from the household of a man named Jesse. Who did Samuel assume was going to be the king? The oldest, the tallest, the biggest, the strongest. And God told Samuel, Samuel, I don't look at people the way people look at people. Because man looks on the outside and God looks at the heart. Sometimes, and this is so easy and we all fall into this, we live our life just thinking as long as nobody else can know what's going on in here, as long as nobody else can look at me and, and point at something and say, that is wrong. I'm happy. I just don't want you to be able to see anything I'm doing that's wrong. You can't tell me anything I'm doing is wrong. I imagine the God of the universe raising his hand in heaven and saying, I can. How much time you got? You only care about what everyone else sees and you never bring that heart of yours to me. I know where the bones are. And where the dirt is. Why don't you bring that to me? And when we don't, we are in the judgment and the wrath of Almighty God. Grand finale woe is next as we fly through these. I'll summarize this one this way. The seventh woe. People earn judgment when they think they would never commit the sins other people have committed. Check this out. Jesus says, woe to you experts in the law and you Pharisees, you bunch of hypocrites. He said that a bunch of times, right? You build tombs for the prophets and you decorate the graves of the righteous. And here's what you say. Here's their problem. 
if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have participated with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Jesus just talked about how Israel often killed the prophets God sent to them. These guys said, well, we would never have done that. No way. We build statues and monuments to the prophets. We would never have done that. And then Jesus says, verse 31, don't miss this. By saying this, you testify against yourselves that you are the real descendants of those who murdered the prophet. They are testifying in open court against themselves. You never want to testify against yourself, right? How did they just testify against themselves? What they said was, we would never kill a prophet. How'd they just testify against themselves? Within a week, what are they going to do? They're going to participate in the death, not only of a prophet, but the prophet that all the prophets pointed towards. They're about to kill the Son of God. Jesus says, you hypocrites, you say you would never have done a thing like that, and you're about to do it. This is pretty specific for them, I think. But here's how I think this relates to us. It's really, really easy to look at someone struggling, stuck in a certain kind of sin, and feel pretty smug and superior. I would never succumb to something like that. I would never sin that kind of sin like that person. That's really easy to say. I think we always need to remember. None of us know how we would react and respond if we were in the exact same position as that person, born with the exact same tendencies and weaknesses under the exact same full court press the enemy may be putting on that person. We just don't know. And Jesus says this to these guys, fill up then the measure of your ancestors. You know what he says right there in verse 32? Finish what your ancestors started. They killed the other prophets. You get started killing this one. Then Jesus asks this question. Has he been pretty harsh on these guys? He has. Then he says, you snakes, you offspring of vipers. Now, I just gotta, that's not a compliment in case you missed that, okay? You snakes, you offspring of vipers. And here's the question. How will you escape being condemned to hell? For them, you know what the answer to that question is? They won't. Jesus says, I just listed seven ways you deserve woe, condemnation, judgment. How are you guys going to escape that? Who's your defense attorney going to be before God that's going to get, get you off of these charges? There isn't one. They're not. These men say one or two that might have made a different decision at some point. They have been in hell for 2,000 years. Even though, Jesus says next, because I'm gracious, I'm going to send you prophets and wise men and experts in the law. 
I'm going to send you, that's the apostles, that's the first century church. I'm going to send you some new witnesses. And guess what you're going to do? You're going to kill and crucify them. You're going to flog them in your synagogues. You're going to chase them out of town. And then Jesus says, and this is special for that generation of Pharisee. He says, you guys are, are going to be so guilty. It's like you killed every a prophet or righteous person who was ever killed in the whole Old Testament. From Cain and Abel to Zechariah. And just so you know, the, the Hebrew Old Testament, in case that's not the one you read, the Hebrew Old Testament doesn't end with Malachi. It ends with First and Second Chronicles. And at the end of, Sec, uh, of Chronicles, there's a the prophet named Zechariah who gets killed. And so this is Jesus saying, you guys are as guilty as if you had killed uh, if you had killed Cain, or excuse me, killed Abel, and Zechariah, and every prophet in between. You know why? Because you're going to kill the one they all point to. Special kind of guilt. Now, that's the passage. But we got some work to do yet. Toward the end of that passage, Jesus said this. It's on the screen. He told these guys, fill up the measure of your ancestors. Put your plan into motion to kill me. That's what he said. You snakes, you offspring of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Praise God there is a different answer to that question. Besides, they won't. Because listen, Jesus pronounced, he held up these guys as the example of the kind of person who deserves judgment. But those Pharisees were not the last people who were guilty on these charges. You want to know the bad news? I don't think there's a single one of us here who are innocent on these charges. Jesus said, you deserve judgment. If you've ever made it less likely that someone avoids judgment by coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So this is where you or I have to ask ourselves, have I ever done anything by commission, by omission? If I didn't do something I should have? If I did something someone saw? If I was... If there was an unbeliever who maybe for whatever reason they were ready to come to church and I said that one thing, I did that, that I didn't invite them. If there's ever anything I did that made one person less likely to come to know Jesus Christ, he says, woe to me, you snake. Jesus says, we deserve judgment. If we've ever majored on the minors and minored on the majors, if we've ever hid behind some religious minutia that we've done, my church attendance, a ritual, the amount of money I give. If I've ever put my preferences in front of the weighty things of God, like helping people come to know his son, like forgiveness, like reconciliation and unity in the body. Jesus says, woe to you, Maxwell, you snake. (laughs) 
if I have ever cared more about what someone else thinks than what God thinks? Do I have to give examples there? Do I have to? Jesus says, woe to you. If you've ever put someone else's opinion ahead of my opinion, woe to you, you deserve eternal damnation. If I've ever thought, looked down my nose at somebody and thought, I would never commit the sin they've committed. Or how about this? These guys bear a special guilt because they were responsible for the death of Jesus. Why did Jesus die? Did your sins put him on that tree? Was it really my sin that held him there? If so, we're guilty of that one too. Woe to you, you snakes and offspring of vipers. How will you ever escape being condemned to hell? Praise God, there's a better answer than I won't. I hope you are not hoping to escape hell because you're not guilty enough to go there. You need a better plan. That's why Jesus told these guys this. Fill up the measure of your ancestors. Put your plan into motion. Get busy killing me. You know why? Because if you don't, there will never be a good answer to this question. How will you avoid hell? Our only hope. Our hope is built on nothing else but what? But Jesus' blood and his righteousness. Because God is good and I am not. And we all stand guilty and deserving of woe on all charges. But there is a way to avoid being condemned to hell. It's by believing that Jesus, when these evil men put their plan into motion, they didn't have power over Jesus. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was laying down his life that he might take it up again. And he bore the sins of the whole world so that guilty snakes like you and me could escape the woe we deserve. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are reminded today as we hear the Lord Jesus' passion and fervor of the judgment that awaits. And we are those who deserve these seven woes. Father, I thank you so much for providing an answer to the question of how will people like us avoid being condemned to hell. It's through Jesus. It's through Jesus. It's through Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for becoming the curse for us. And God, empower us to be the blessed kind of person from the Beatitudes and put to death that person in us that deserves your woe. Help us to be poor in spirit, mourn, meek, 
Help us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Help us to care more about what you think than other people think. Help us to open the pathway to you instead of slamming it in people's faces. Because there is but one way. But praise God, there is a way that guilty snakes like us can avoid being condemned to hell. And in the name of that way, Jesus, we pray to you. Amen. Stand and finish.